Welcome to the J2 Hub podcast, where we focus on everything from property development, hot entrepreneurially business topics, and real-life scenarios facing business owners just like you and I. Brought to you by James Sahota, we bring you exciting real-life property, business and entrepreneurially related hot topics, and that little bit more. So welcome everybody to another episode of the J2 Hub podcast. This week I'm super, super, super excited to be joined by someone I've been following for a very, very long time, kind of just lurking in the background, watching what she's doing, uh, watching some of the content going out, her YouTube channel, and all the wonderful bits that she puts out online. Now, if you don't know her and you're in the property game, you're probably walking around with your ears closed and your eyes closed, because if you haven't seen her about, um, you're not following the right people. So this week, I'm super, super, super excited to introduce Susanna Cole, who's here with me on a podcast. Uh, Firstly, thank you very much, Susanna, for coming on to the podcast with me. I know you're a very, very busy person, so I appreciate you taking your time to give me some of your time and give some of my listeners your time so they can get to better know what you do. And same back. Thanks for having me. It's good fun, isn't it, talking about property and then making it happen. Mm -hmm. It's a pleasure. Thank you. So, Suzanne, I'm going to kick off by, I obviously know who you are. I've been following you for a while. I'm, I'm, I'm a bit of a fan. Um, but for the people that don't know who you are, can you just let us know who is Susanna Cole? Where did you start and what are you all about? Sure. And it's, it's nice doing this with you because we started talking on Instagram, didn't we? That's first, great. And then we had phone calls and then we met up in person and then like we're going to see each other this weekend. So it's a nice, a nice relationship development you know, to, from to, until we're just talking to each other equal to equal about property portfolios, really, isn't it? I, I like it. Yeah. Um, so background, I've been in property for quite a long time now, um, well over a decade. I started a, a, well, I've done a bunch of buy to sells up in Scotland. Uh, but I always knew, well, I was still working full time in property, but I always knew that I wanted to be in property and wanted to be full time in property. So I, I kind of officially jumped out my day job probably about over a decade ago now. And uh, by that point, I'd already bought seven houses. So I felt that I had done enough to warrant the test of being able to jump out my day job. Uh, and then I ran the good property company. I ran it from my kitchen table, you know, cups of tea. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in the first four and a half years, we sourced over 200 deals in Bristol, where everybody was like, you can't find deals. There's too much competition. I'm like, yeah, can. It's just a numbers game. And we did 45 million pounds worth of property that we sourced for 30 million quid. And we did a whole bunch of different things with that. Because if you can source something discounted, there's a heck of a lot you can do. So number one, I was the biggest buyer because I have a property portfolio. I'm financially free. As you've probably seen, I, I spend a, a part of my time traveling around the world, like just relishing this beautiful world that we've got. And then I spend part of my time working really hard because I love property. So I built, built my own portfolio as a result of being able to buy discounted deals. I ran a deal packaging, deal sourcing business. So we would sell on a deal and let's just say it was it cost 200 grand we charge 5% so we get 10 grand fee in kind of 6 to 12 weeks and every penny of that then went to buy my properties then we said hang on a minute here this is super but we're going to introduce a joint venture buy and sell strategy so we did tons and tons of joint ventures um, and buying and selling I also did buying and selling on my own um, and yeah I've built houses split houses to flats got planning permission so in the residential area, I'm pretty experienced. 
Uh, and then years ago, somebody said, could you mentor me? And I was a bit like, who? Who? <laughs> who are you talking to? And it was this great lady called Wendy. And it, what it was, was because we had such very fast growth, I'd measure everything. So I like to know my stats. I like to know how a business can scale. I like to know what goes right as well as goes wrong. Goes wrong. Uh, and I'd also raised millions and millions of pounds worth of private finance. So she could see that because I knew my stats, I could probably transfer that knowledge to her. So we've been running a very, very high quality mentoring program. We're in its ninth year. Um, and then I also, about five years ago, thought, well, I could share this stuff with people. So I have a YouTube channel. We've got over a million views. It's called The Good Property Company, Susanna Cole. Dead easy. Uh, and then I have an online mentoring program. And we have also a whole load of really high quality online education because this stuff is transferable. The knowledge is transferable. So we've done a bit, as you can see. We've also made loads of mistakes, but we've, we've delivered quite a bit. Mm-hmm. So what were you doing before you went into property full-time, Susanna? Oh, okay. So um, when I was younger, because we're not talking age at all, but I'm not 21 anymore. Um, when I started, I had my children, my responsibilities, as I call them, you know, double the love, double the hugs, double the responsibility. I had children fairly young. So by the age of 22, I was a mum, which I loved. But it meant that for the first seven years of my children being young, I didn't want to go and have a day job because I'd be separated from my family. And uh, 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 yeah, um, so I ran a fair trade business uh, until the age of 29. And I grew up from a little, a little pasting table property up to five shops up in Scotland. And then I was also shooting out vans every weekend for like Reading, Glastonbury, you know, Phoenix, you know, uh, V the V Festival up in Leeds and all those areas. So, so I, I ran fair trade businesses, retail businesses for seven years. And then I thought, actually, I need to know some stuff. So I, I only ever had four corporate jobs. I worked in the cashmere industry. So I raised a million quid for them. And I was, I worked at kind of director level. I wasn't a director, but director level advising 14 different companies in the Scottish borders on their business and it was fascinating to see the same product cashmere with a very talented management team or a less experienced and less able management team produces a totally different business outcome you know johnson and johnson the, the biggest textile uh, uh, the biggest text not just johnson sorry not johnson and johnson that's the johnsons of elgin who are also in the borders are the biggest textile company in europe and then we had people who in what's called special measures so where the banks had just put them in special measures and they were really focusing on them because they were too big to fail because they didn't have enough assets. So they had to keep them alive, but they're desperate trying to get their cash back out of them and then drop them. Wow. Um, so it was fascinating to realize that so much of business is how a person runs the business, how a management team runs the business. Then I did a high growth charity in Project Scotland. Then I moved down to Bristol and I blagged blagged a job i ran kiss do you know that the radio station yeah, I know that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah so my embarrassing moment was um this was uh, when rihanna was really big well she's huge isn't she but when she was becoming big and i went down to the I, so I, I ran the, the bristol station and i went down to london and here's rihanna with two bodyguards and i went who's that <laughs> <laughs> she's like three meters away and umbrella was huge and I didn't recognize her. So I wasn't the coolest station director. Like I was very uncool and very country. <laughs> and I'm then, finally, oh my God, like 
And, and you could see my boss just going, you know, you could see going, did we employ the right person? <laughs> you know, and I'm like, oh no, I'm running a dance music station in Bristol and I didn't recognize Rihanna. Wow. Sorry. And then I was the marketing director of the SS Great Britain um, in Bristol, which is kind of really important cultural icon. But I all, so there were so many things that were great about those four jobs. So many things. So I'm not complaining. I benefited and relished so much. But, um, so without being negative about them, I also went, hang on a minute here. I'm doing like 60 hours a week. I'm head of household, single parent. Like, I'm traveling back from London. I want to be with my family. I'm supporting them, which is brilliant. You know, it's part of what a parent does. But uh, family, you know, someone else has got my blood, my life blood, you know, and they're, and they're draining it away into their shareholders, you know, and, and my, my blood should be with my family. So, so it was, it wasn't like I hated those jobs. I found them fascinating and interesting, but it, it's like this, I'm not alive, you know? So it was that I wanted freedom. I wanted time to be with my family. I wanted be the choice, you know, and, and I also knew I needed to know some stuff, which is why I went and did corporate life. And I, I wouldn't think it's a bad idea for somebody to do, to learn some real professional skills, but you put a time limit on it. So I did. And I okay. left. <laughs> so can I ask you, Suzanne, you mentioned uh, you're a single parent. When, yes. you were, when you were starting out in property, because um, I mean, I come from a single parent family myself. So I know watching my mum, I lost my dad when he was when I was seven years old. So I watched my mum not only become my mum, but become my dad and become everything. Yes. And I watched her go out and work two jobs. And she, for what she achieved, I say to her, you've achieved so much because you put me and my sister through education. You did everything for us. And I'm now approaching my 40s. And I still remember all that time we spent together with her. Yes. And she's grieving at the same time, but she's hustling to get us through. So yeah. do you mind me asking you, what was it like in your early point, your early days of property, you've got young kids, you're on your own. How were you managing it? Because I, I hear this thing time and time again. Oh, I just don't have enough time. I just don't yeah. have enough time. Yes. And I just think that's a load of nonsense when people say that, because, you know, if you want it bad enough, you'll create it. So what, what, how did you go about doing that? Um, I'll tell you in just a moment, but because uh, um, I think what you said is absolutely right. But have you read stuff for your own personal situation? Have you read stuff about one in three British prime ministers and American presidents have lost a parent before the age of 14? No, I'm not. No, it's a fact for your own personal knowledge. And my dad lost his dad at the age of 14. And my dad was a very working class guy in uh, came from, a you know, his dad was a plasterer, communist, you know, so didn't get much work in the 30s. And my dad is a very clever guy and very hardworking and became a maths professor, you know, which was an unlikely route from that social background apart from grammar schools. So interesting for you possibly to consider how that impacted on you. So one in three prime ministers and presidents have lost a parent before the age of 14. And I'm interested in that because of my dad. And somehow it allows somebody to realize that life is, I don't know what the, re- I don't know what it is, but difficulty allows you to cut through crap, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Um, And, uh, uh, you know, uh, cut through excuses because you can see the end of things, you know, and just go, no, life is short. I'm going to make it happen. So I think there's some pluses and minuses. For me, 
um, because I'd had children young, it wasn't like I'd kind of like, you know, partied for a long time and then and then had children and realized how tiring it is having children. I went straight into having kids. So that was normal. Like that being very, very tired, you know, like morning. Yeah. <laughs> I, 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 that was a, a complete, so that in a way was a blessing. And then uh, there was no plan B. There is no plan B if you are the only person responsible for your children. Now, I'm close to my parents, but I'm also quite stubborn. So I'm responsible, you know. So plan B didn't exist. And I think where your back is against the wall, the Maslow hierarchy of needs, you get on with it. So no television. As, um, I would work before the kids woke up in the morning on property. I'd then, uh, I'd also do a workout before they woke up as well. So that was physically kind of quite good. Then obviously breakfast, then um, they'd walk to school and then I'd go to my day job at lunchtime. I would immediately do, it was the first time I ever took a break in a job. I would actually work on my properties for an hour, you know, phoning the plumbers and nailing it at a cafe. Back to work, back home, children, homework, school uniform, ironing, pack lunches, just everything, isn't it? You know, all of that, you know, love and cuddles and stories at nighttime it baths, toothbrush, have you brushed your teeth, no, pick your socks up and all of that stuff. Children asleep, back to work. And that was it. Um, so I used to watch, um, this will date me, I used to watch Sex in the City on a Wednesday night. Uh, and it was my one Susanna hour, if you like. And I remember being so exhausted. And I'm not moaning, it's just it became normal, you see, so I didn't see it as a difficulty. I remember being so exhausted, I actually fell off the sofa because I was laughing too much, but I was so exhausted I couldn't hold myself on the sofa. So yeah. it does show you I did push to the edge of my resources. But the good news is there was no plan B. So there was no comfort zone to stay in. So my comfort zone would have been, I'd be a corporate mum, seeing my kids, you know, like the, to the toppy endy morning and evening and at weekends. And that wasn't good enough for me for families. So there wasn't a plan B, so you just make it happen. So get rid of distractions. No TV. Um, I don't do much socialising, although, and I did say to all my friends, I love you to bits, but do you mind if I just duck out for 18 months and thank you? And they were so kind. They really were cool. But I did say up front, I'm going to get my head down for 18 months. I still want to be your friend. Is that okay with you? <laughs> you know, so I'm not trying to be rotten. I'm just trying to change the, the lives of myself and my kids first. So... Even I reduced them the times I saw my friends. Um, yeah. yeah. So you kind of you kind of just had to adapt yourself. Um, it seems like your your purpose and your vision was so strong that it was almost tunnel vision that you didn't. There was nothing that could distract you from the side because you right. knew exactly where you were going. Yes, and I think sometimes people find that uh, when you've got an hour, you can, I I view it like candy floss. You know, you put the the stick in the in the sugar. And it, it like spins round and it's this lovely, great, big pink bit of candy floss. But if you just squish it down, it's actually tiny. And I think sometimes people who are not so driven or like, I didn't have time. I worked, I, I used to monitor my time. One, two, three, four, gate. One, two, three, four, four, gate. And I used to do minimum 30 hours on top of my day job in property. So I couldn't afford to like have a candy floss hour that didn't get stuff done. Because then I had to like do the kids washing or, you know, help them with the homework or whatever. So I think the fact that I had no time to waste meant that every minute more or less was accounted for and had to deliver. Mm, so your time, every, like you said, every minute just became so precious. 
yes. but you, you just couldn't waste it. Yeah. So one of the things I did was I measured everything, which is why I think we've become kind of quite um, uh, respected because I know my data, because if I can make something happen faster, cheaper, with less effort, I've got to, I'm going to measure it to improve it. And it's because, you know, I'd rather go and hang out with the kids in the swings, you know, mm. and, and, and also my kids were just at that age where Saturdays they were like, mom, you're just not cool. <laughs> you know see ya <laughs> so I had the if you like working benefit where on Saturdays they'd see their friends um, and then Sundays was a can't was a rule Sundays is family day and um, so either I'd have loads of kids running around my house having a brilliant time or I'd have no kids in my house because they're off seeing their friends on a Saturday and then Sunday was you know chicken roast chicken and apple crumble and custard you know we are at home we're doing things together so it was about making everything efficient. So a really great example is I used to take um, Fridays off. And in the end, my boss was very kind and let me work four days a week and I'd have Fridays off. And I'd be banging out phone calls to estate agents. And then Saturdays, I'd do between 10 and 13 viewings, the little two ninety nine Ikea flask that my daughter had bought me, and sandwiches because I don't have time to go to the shop, and a Kit Kat because I don't have time to go to the shop. And it would be every half hour was a new viewing. So you're in, view, sort it out, in, view, sort it out. And then Saturday night when the kids were asleep, I'd be sending in my offers to the estate agents so that they could accept them or reject them on Monday morning. So that was my Saturday night. Rock on. (laughs) Wow. Wow. Can I just, um, you mentioned that you actually took a whole day out for family on a Sunday. Now, I know, I mean, I meet a lot of people at at events and networking events and everybody's just like, you know, I... I hear this time and time again, I just don't have enough time for my kids. I don't have enough time for my family. How important do you think that day was for you, that one day, that Sunday, where it was just you and your children? It's just fun, isn't it? It's super. I think it's important on so many different levels because I've always been a hard worker. So it's super important for the children of a hard worker to know that they're more important than work. You know, it's super important for them. It's super important for you because I think with children, especially I have a boy and a girl, boys, they're side by side. You know, girls, you can be like, sweetheart, tell me your heart. Boys, it's like, mom, this is happening. And you're both looking at something else, aren't you? Like a dog, you know, swing. And then and then these really deep feelings are coming out from the boy sideways. You know, so particularly and that's how I manage builders as well. Shoulder Mm -hmm. to shoulder is uh, right we'll do it this way uh, so I needed I needed some pace with the children to make sure that I was hearing them particularly the boy you know to make sure that what was in his heart was coming out and I was there to be supportive as well mm-hmm. no I think I agree with you there because for me I've been in business for a while now and my wife says to me all the time you know you don't you, early years you didn't spend enough time with the children at all yes. and I see that now you know you kind of think wow, I've missed so much of him growing up. And you kind of, in a flash, you look around and you're like, God, he's up to my shoulder now and time gone. So I think it's a very fine kind of balancing act when you're running a business and trying to manage your family as well. Yes. But I think also I kind of use certain techniques, I suppose. So Sundays were sacrosanct. Sunday is roast dinner, apple crumble, custard, go for a walk, which the kids were like, mom, (laughs) you know, boring you know but and of course we didn't have much money you know I mean years and years ago I was I was what they call what do they call it heat uh, um 
uh, um, heat poverty. I mean, I literally, when, when they were very young, I couldn't afford heating. So we would just go for a walk and we'd pick up locks and I'd take them home and I'd chop them up because I'm not going into debt if I don't have money. So again, do you notice very, very tough circumstances which allowed me later on, I appreciate I appreciate every time I buy a coffee and I'm a multimillionaire now. I just go, oh, this is lovely. I'm, you know, I've, I fly the fold down seats and I, t- I, t- I, I work 183 days and I'm, I'm on holiday or spending time with people I love 182 days. I appreciate everything because of where I came from. Um, so I think it's quite important to almost have rules that you have to abide by. So Sundays, no work. And then the other technique t- tips I did for my children was either they had loads of kids around or they would be at someone else's house. So they were socializing. You know, it takes a village to raise a child. So I could be working in the house if they had loads of kids around in the house because I'd be there going, oi, keep the noise down. But, but they were having fun as a, as a group. And, and I, so I'm, I'm not a big fan of them doing too much gaming, to be honest. Oh, nice tactic, that. Get them all around and they keep themselves occupied and you can crack on with what you need to crack on with. Oh, it really works. They really works. You know, get a nice solid group of kids and they have yeah. a blast. And yeah. then you just provide like the biscuits and the food. Mm-hmm. Yes. So what, so anybody sitting there or anybody when they do listen to this saying, Oh, I don't have enough time and they've got no children at all and they're Ooh. on their own. What would you say to them? Actually analyze yourself because we believe the stories we tell ourselves. And I'm sure I'm telling myself some stories and someone else is going to see what you're talking about. So analyze yourself. It, everything is measurable. Property, there's an art and a science. So measure what you do every day. How many hours a day are you on social media? How many hours a day do you watch television? How many hours a day do you X, Y, Z? And then go, what's important? What needs to stay and what needs to stop? Because you can't start something without stopping something. So, for example, like I do quite a lot of exercise, but my office is I am I live Bristol City Centre. My office is the other side of the city centre, which and I own. So I work. I walk 40 minutes to work every day and 40 minutes back. Plus I train. Um, but those 40 minutes I'm doing exercise, but I'm also doing something. Mm-hmm. So I was I always because I, I had to be highly efficient. But for somebody starting analyze what you're doing for a week, just do a time log on yourself you'll be mortified at like, oh, turns out I do have time. But that's great. And then the next step is understand what you need to do in property. So I always talk about, don't I, 30% deals, 30% investor oh, money, and 40% working on the business. So Arthur and I, later on, Arthur and I working at my house today, we're doing KPIs, key performance indicators, that's working on the business. And then later on, I'm doing some commercial funding work. Um, so if you make sure that 30% of the time you spend on property is on deals, 30% on the money and 40% on the whole business, you're probably doing a nice, a nice flow of money coming in, deals coming in and the business functioning reasonably well without it feeling like too many plates are spinning. But you will feel in the early days like loads of plates are spinning. You will feel like you're in a washing machine because it's a new skill set. You are not an expert yet in property. Like for me now, and I hope I don't sound like a right, you know, PRAT, but fi- finding a discounted house would take me about three to four hours. Like I just, I can do it like walking on my hands. Do you know what I mean? Wow. Raising yeah. money, I can do like walking on my hands only because I've done it so many times. But the first time you do that, where you find in a house for 200 grand that should be, should be bought at 300 grand, like that's a lot of skill that you need to develop. It's just I've done it hundreds of times, you see. 
Mm-hmm. So I think it's number one is track your time num- and, and then eliminate stuff that's not useful. And then number two is realize you have to go through those four stages. The uh, con- unconsciously incompetent, that's blissful. Consciously incompetent, that's when you're just like, oh God, this is so embarrassing. When people start using language like I'm a newbie, you know, and they're like, <laughs> oh, I'm a newbie, sorry. Don't worry about it. <laughs> you know, we're all entrepreneurs. Then consciously competent, when people are like, right, I know a bit, but I have to think about implementing it before I do it. And then unconsciously competent when they've put in the 10,000 hours and they really know their stuff. No one gets to there without starting one, two, three, four. Mm-hmm. So accept it, start as the tea lady, move up to chief exec of your business. No, I think that's a, that's a great tip because I did that a little while ago. We called it a default diary. I think we all did it in the office where we nice. for two weeks we logged everything we were doing from the beginning of the day to the, actually from the point we got up to the point yes. we went to bed. Yes. And some of us, when we looked at it at the end of the two weeks, it was, it's like what you said. It was like, whoa, where did that big chunk just go? Where yeah. did that go? And suddenly we've got all these extra hours as a team to do stuff. Yes. Now I hope your, your viewers and listeners don't think I'm, but I'm like, woo, Netflix. You're like, <laughs> Cause I'm financially free now and I love my work. But I, I balance a very full-on work with 182 days not working. Yeah. So I'm like, wow. I'm like, I'm like, open up the sweetie box. You know what I mean? <laughs> For the first time in 10 years. You guys all know your way around this stuff. I'm just learning it. Two books that are really useful, probably for your guys. One is for me was a Bible. You know, I just it was like, oh, this is my grateful diary, by the way. It was like. I'm holding on to this like so much. It was Stephen Covey, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. Yeah. For me, every time I got overwhelmed, which was quite a lot in the early days, I went back to that book and every time it made sense. And he actually died in a freak bicycle accident. And obviously I'd never met him. He was an American author. And when I heard he died, I felt bereaved because he had played such a large part in my life. Mm-hmm. Um, that book, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, I found amazing. And then the second book for people being really productive, I read this summer, very good, Cal Newport, called Deep Work. And what he talks about is you can only really concentrate for 90 minutes. So concentrate and deliver nonstop for 90 minutes, shake it off, do some light work, like, you know, email answering or some admin or, you know, some good, good work. You're not, not working, but you're not doing huge concentration. So shake it off for about an hour, do some light work and then another 90 minutes. And you can only do maximum three sets of 90 minutes of deep work a day interspersed with either exercise or a walk or shaking it off. And I've, I've implemented that and it's totally true. Wow. Good bit. Yeah, no, some solid advice there. Um, Susanna, can you tell me what was your first property deal like? What did it look like? How did you fund it? Uh, How did you find it? Um, And do you still remember it because you've done so many? Yeah, I remember. Oh, my God. I even remember the ones that got away. I'm like, I wish I had that house. Only because, so my my very first one, I'll tell you, I'll tell you a couple, my very first deal and then my very first HMO, because those were really big milestones for me. So the first deal was um, a little a little flat in Wellington Avenue, around the corner from where I lived. I got it from an estate agent. I made friends with an estate agent who's a lovely guy called David. And 
like any first deal, it was exactly what it should have been. It was a one bed flat. So you're not risking too much money, although it felt like a, a fortune and you're, you're testing out your skills as a landlord in the simplest way possible. So it was a tiny little one bed flat. It had a bedroom, a bathroom, a very small hallway and a kitchen diner. Uh, and that was, that was it. The kitchen living room diner. And I bought it for 79,000. At the time it was worth 120 because I wouldn't have bought it if it wasn't worth some, you know, 120. And I spent eight grand doing it up and I did most of the painting. <laughs> and 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 I got the I got the um I got the electrician to put in the electric shower. Yeah? Yeah. The electric shower. And then I didn't test anything. So all the mistakes you make are really good for later on. I didn't test a thing. The first tenants moved in. It was Tim and his wife. And I still know Tim now, like 12 years later. They moved in and they phoned me up going, Suze, the shower's not working. So I phoned the electrician going, Steve, the shower's not working. He went, I'm an electrician. Did you get the plumber to plumb in? No. <laughs> so if, if anyone's listening has made a stupid mistake like that don't worry about it you know i did i did 45 million quid's worth of property and that was my first one of my very first mistakes but and i got it from an estate agent and it was an a, an ex uh, housing association being sold off okay i bought a lot of ex housing it was, it was a very nice victorian uh, flat but i bought a lot of ex cancer houses being sold off a lot of ex mainly from auctions but this one happened to be from an estate agent um, and then I sold it about three years later. I kind of wish I hadn't, but at the time it made sense. So I did six single lets and kind of just, you know, joined the National Landlord Association, who I'm massive fans of. I bet the RLA are just as good. I just happened to have joined the NLA, their legal helpline. I was like hanging on to it like this, you know, because you feel in the early stages of landlord, you feel like the whole legal stuff is really scary. But later on, it's like, no, this is really sensible. It protects you and it protects the tenant. Everybody's a winner. And, and, um, and then my first HMO was my seventh property. Okay. So the first one, I've, I'm, I financed it through my own mortgage. I pulled 60 grand out of my mortgage and I used it to buy this one and the next one. By the time I got to property number seven, they'd introduced, and I had no intention of raising money, no intention of mentoring, no intention, our YouTube channel's got a million views, no intention of doing a YouTube channel, podcast, nothing. I was just going to buy some houses, make sure my kids were okay. That was the whole plan, right? Oh, and ha- check this. My total plan was to buy 20 houses at hundred grand each, two million pound portfolio. Oh, you know, and, and I, I, sent, I sent a book the other day to a friend of mine called Matt, and it's a very badly written book, but it was the first, I won't name the author because they're in the industry. It was a very badly written book, but it was the first book I read. And so even though it was very badly written, it really inspired me. Mm-hmm. My friend Matt is very, well, I, I think we can both agree that OCD is a great quality. So he's very OCD. So I sent him this book as a joke like, cause it was so badly written. And then he said, did you mean to send me your business plan at the back of this book? I'd written out my business plan. It was, oh, it was wow. 20 houses at hundred grand each, 2 million portfolio. I did 45 million quid's worth of portfolio. Smash that, didn't you? Smash that somewhat. So that, but, but to me in the early stage, and again, maybe your listeners can, can relate like 20 houses. That's beyond possible. You know what I mean? Like, I don't know anybody who's done this. So my intention was just to buy, discounted, refinance, rent out and go again. And then they introduced the six months rule. And I was a bit like, "Uh, excuse me, honey, (laughs) I am not gone this slow. So then I was like, right, I can buy discounted because I'm good at that. Okay, I have to raise some money. So I raised 600 grand 
a, in, in 14 weeks. And I bought my seventh house, uh, which didn't cost 600 grand, by the way, but that was part of. Um, I raised 167,500 from an investor who's become a very good friend of mine, Anthony. The property was worth, uh, I was buying it for 150. It was worth 235 at the time. I turned it into a five bed HMA. And that property has consistently made about a thousand pound a month net every year in the last more or less decade. And then I moved from singlets to HMOs, cookie cutter and stamped them out. You know, three, four, uh, 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 five bathrooms in a five bedroom house. Wow. And I went, okay, I can do properties that make a thousand pound a month. And I can, I borrowed the whole of the private money to, to buy the property. I borrowed the whole of the re- renovation money to re- renovate the property. I refinanced it. I paid him back. I paid that person back. Well, I can do this again and again. So mm-hmm. I did. So I moved from own money to private loans, private loans. And then later on, I moved also into joint ventures. Because if you can find discounted deals and you can work with investors and you're paranoidly paranoid about their money, you know, like scared to bits about it, really, then how many properties can you buy? As many as you can manage, as long as you pay the money back, obviously. And I've done that. How quickly did you move away from using your own money to using investor funds? Property number three, because uh, on property number one and two, la, 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 and then they put the six-month rule in. And I was like, uh, I'm having a fit. So property number three was investor funds. Right, okay. Because I wasn't prepared to do two to four properties a year on my 60 grand. I wasn't prepared for that. I wanted to go fast. Mm. I wanted out my day job. I wanted to be with my kids. Of course, yeah. So when you... Um you said you've raised quite a lot of finance. Now, I, I, you know, a lot of these courses, a lot of the stuff online talks about working with JV partners, raising finance from other people. Yes. How did you go about doing that in the early days? And how did you, you know, when you raise that huge amount of sum, you just said, yeah. how did you do that so quickly? Um, I'm, I'm very, very straight speaking. I'm very open and I'm dead honest. Um, and, and I show it. So I was really freaked out. You, um, and I've never actually added up how many millions I've raised. I only ever raised about a million at a time in loans because I was so scared of not being able to pay it back. Do you see what I mean? Because I could have kept going. I could have gone to the point I toppled over because people trusted me. And I was just like, no, that's too scary. And that's why I mixed raising private finance where all the debt is on my shoulders and joint ventures where if we're going to, that's my grateful though, but if we're going to buy and set, like say you and I, like if you lend me money, I have to pay you whether the project works or not. Yeah. Right? Fine. That's that's what I've agreed to do. I'm, I'm cool with that. Um, if you and I joint ventured on my grateful diary and said we're going to mark it up and sell it, you, I, whilst I have got a huge responsibility, I don't need to pay you. My shoulder doesn't pay you back. The sale of the diary pays you back. Do you see mm-hmm. what I mean? So it's moving risk and reward. So on this one, you would get 50% of the purchase of, of the profit, but then I'm I'm holding a lot of reputational risk, but I don't actually have to pay you if it doesn't sell. We come to an arrangement. Whereas if you just lend me money, I have to pay you. So I only ever borrowed up to about a million quid cash because I was paranoid, and the rest were buy to sells, uh, uh, joint ventures. So how did I go about it? Um, fast <laughs> uh, I hoovered up cards in the room I'd be like butterflying throughout the room I'd be really straight with people saying look 
you sound brilliant. I'd love to hang out with you. But tonight, I'm here to collect business cards. Can And I, I love the chat that we've had, but my job is to collect business cards tonight. And there's 60 people in the room, and I want to get all 60 business cards. So can we put an appointment in the diary to chat on Monday? Um, so anybody I thought was just amazing. You know, the, 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 the mistake people do is they think all the work is done in the room, and they go into, like, 20, 30-minute conversations one-on-one. Mm-hmm. So all not all. But all you've done is have two very high quality conversations, but you've done it in the wrong location. Collect everybody's business cards. And then I, I just had a process. After I collected everybody's business cards, I followed them up to five voicemails, a bit, a bit like a stalker. But basically, I figured that people are so busy, it's not their responsibility to phone me back. And after I've left five messages, maybe I'll get the hint. But genuine you know people are are working they've got families so why are they going to phone me back there's there's no reason for them to phone me back so I always just went I'm going to phone someone to to voicemail five before I give up on them because because I just recognized they were so busy and then anybody I liked I'd I'd ask three questions what's your objective what's your time frame and how much is your pot so we'd find out the balance they had if they didn't have any money but I still like them I still hang out with them it's just they, they weren't on my fundraising campaign. If I liked them and they had money and they wanted me to do the work, fabulous. Let's go make some money together. And then I knew that I had to meet them and talk to them between five and nine times before they trust me. I was super open. I used to give them, like when I was still working, my pay slip, my personal mortgage statements. Uh, that I used to give them a personal st- a mortgage statements on the houses I bought, the equity value spreadsheets, I would tell them everything. I, I basically created due diligence for them so they could see everything. So by being so open and being very collecting of business cards and, and moving the conversation to after the business, the property meet, not during the property meet, I got loads of contact details and was really open and people wanted to work with me. The stats, one in 10 people at a property meet has, has money to invest. Nine out of 10 don't. One in two of those, if you follow up, We'll give you 50 grand. If you don't follow up, nobody will give you any money. So for every 50 grand you want to raise, you have to meet and collect 20 business cards. Wow. And that's the stat you've measured? Yeah, of course I have. Every business card. Yeah. I mean, I, yeah, of course. It's just numbers. And then don't work with them if you don't like them. I think I remember you talking about this at the PPN event. I think one of your students, Harriet, was, is it Harriet? Yeah, she was there. And yeah. I remember you saying, you stopped every so often and you said, Harriet, how many business cards have you gathered? And then you were flipping the stats on her while she was there saying, well, that's not enough. You've got to work this room. Yeah. It's true. It's true. And then JV partners, obviously there's quite a lot of compliance that your readers or listeners or, or viewers need to make sure they do 13.3. So out of the people that can lend you money, roughly 50% of my investors were JV compliant and 50% weren't. So obviously I couldn't do any joint ventures with anybody who wasn't compliant. So interesting, isn't it? So out of 100% of people that could lend me money, um, which is basically one in 20 people I met at a property event, so obviously I collected a load of cards and followed up, only one in two of those could actually joint venture for me to be able to do that with them. Can so you give examples where you're saying compliant and non-compliant? What would that be? So, um, and again, I'm a generalist. I'm not given legal advice, but I do know my stuff. Um, your guys need to look up PS 13.3. It's a white paper produced by the government on the 1st of January 2014. I thoroughly agree with it. It prevents 
people who are unable, who are not experienced enough to make risky financial decisions, making those decisions, I think is a good thing. There are three categories for your JV partners to be compliant. I only understand two of them. <laughs> so I only work with two um, and I'm no dummy. You know, the first one is they need to be high net worth. Uh, you need to prove this. So they need to have an income of hundred grand a year or more or pay slips or um, uh, informate profit and loss from the accountant, or they have assets, assets worth 250,000 and above, not their own family home, pension or insurance. So again, you want to get the address of whatever rental properties they've got. You need to get the most up-to-date mortgage statement. You need to do a land registry check to make sure there's no charges and second and third loans on it. You need to make sure they're the sole owner. And then you need to make sure that the equity is 250 grand and above. And that's quite sensible, isn't it? That's quite simple. High net worth, I totally understand. I can do that all day long. The second category is limited companies. That I understand I can do that all day long. The third category is what's called sophisticated investors. Now, I actually have an MBA. I have a first in an MBA, and I don't understand the sophisticated category. In I kind of do, but not enough. I could stand in front of a judge and say, dib, 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 your honor, I'm sure. So I just don't do that category because I'm not dib, dib, dib. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I don't feel I don't feel I'm knowledgeable enough to to back myself doing that category. So I just don't do it. Wow. Yeah, no, some good advice there. So once you raised um once you raised that big sum that you got through your through your investors, yes. what did you go ahead and do with it? <laughs> I bought a shed load of properties. So I did two strategies. I bought um discounted, so a typical example, bought for two or three. Spent 41 grand on it. It was revalued, Rick's valuation, like six months later at 3.30. So when you do 75, because that's a normal deal for me. Um, and it makes over a grand a month. It makes every year, it makes between, it makes between 12 and 20 grand a year net profit. Uh, okay. Sorry, net profit before tax. Okay. Yeah. More 20 than 12. Uh, but one year we had a big bug year. So it only made 12 that year. But um, and so obviously when I refinanced, I could pay the investor out. And I bought that purely with investor cash. When I've bought a lot of my properties with no mortgages, investors, but knowing I could refinance back out because my discounted buying was so strong. Or I would joint venture with them and buy and sell projects. Um, so I would do that really regularly. Uh, um, or I would, um, yeah, yeah. So joint ventures for me were always buy to sell and borrowing money was usually uh, usually buy to keep and then the third strategy I would do is I would also run buy to sell campaigns myself where instead of like the joint venture we're splitting profit 50 50 I put my own cash in so I'd make 100% of the profit and I never even I never even took the money out of the lawyer's account it would be like yeah the money's arrived on Tuesday that's brilliant because we've got a house being bought on Friday just keep the money like I never ever ever saw the profit from my buy to flips because they went straight back into buy to keeps. I put every bit of profit into back into my portfolio for many years and I'm reaping the re- reward now. So it's that whole delayed gratification that people talk about, you know, a Napoleon Hill um, or, or rich dad, poor dad, they all talk about that, don't they? And mm-hmm. at one point we had 30 buy to sells on the go at one time, which I'm going to tell you now was a bit mental. And at one point we tried to buy 30 houses at, pro- at auction um, which I'm going to tell you now was a bit mental. We fa- we got seven. Wow. It was a bit full on. Yeah. 
what was um so your strategy at the time what different strategies did you have oh i like cookie cutter strategies once you do something you do it again you like so i'm about to sell a the exact same towels the exact same bathroom the exact same cushions the exact same kitchen the exact same the carpets everything was the same yeah and so i would buy to sell non-stop to generate cash whether it was with joint venture money or whether it was with my own money and I would have three um, uh, posing kits at any one time that were moving around the properties really, really fast. Uh, and it was it was cookie cutter, middle of the road properties between 100 grand and maybe 350. The kind of, you know, Marks and Spencer, Debenhams, um, Fraser's, uh, John Lewis range. So not a Harvey Nicks house and not a Primark house a kind of middle of the range. Why? Because so many buyers can afford that price point. So mm-hmm. I wanted to make sure, because I was taking risks with other people's money, I wanted to make sure there's a lot of fluidity of buyers. Um, um, whereas now I would do very high-end houses where people just go mad and pay crazy money because I, I can afford to keep the property. I can afford to have mistakes happen. I couldn't really afford for mistakes to happen with, with JV partners and they did happen and we can talk about them. So I did a really um, middle of the range buying and selling. And I did not want to be doing a 12 week renovation. I mean, some renovations took that long. I want to get in, turn it around in one week, two weeks, three weeks, four weeks, five weeks, six weeks. You know, ideally I want a light refurb, turn it around back out again. So, so I buy it on a Friday builders are going on Saturday or the Monday. You know, if it was to be finished on the Friday, I'd be having estate agents coming in on the preceding Monday, stepping over the builders, taking photos. Or sorry, we'd have the photographer doing photos. But, you know, the builders would finish Friday. It'd be on the market Saturday with an open day. You know, cookie cutter, no waste of time because time is money, particularly if you're on a bridge. So that was my buy to sell strategy. My second strategy was deal packaging, finding discounted deals um, really good quality ones, you know, 45 million quid's worth of property we sourced for 30 million quid before refurb, selling them onto my investors. So I used to charge a thousand pound for a year's membership of my group. Uh, and then they'd pay a thousand. So that's super. That pays for some admin um, and some good quality team members. So you're opening the door thinking I can pay some salaries. That's great. We would release a deal. We do about a 10 page deal report. We're really careful on our deals. Most went. So to give you an idea, the first forty-two buy to sells we did sold for four hundred two thousand pound more than we said, which is sounds great. But one in five sold for a little bit less than we said, even within that big range. Do you see what I mean? So we tell our investors all of the stats. So we would we would release a deal report within thirty to sixty seconds. Somebody would have reserved it with a thousand pound fee. And then we'd convince like mad and get paid four, six, eight weeks later. And we do investor days every two weeks all year, crank the handle on a Monday afternoon. And you're always running around going, oh my God, I don't have time for this, you know, but you need to make sure your investors are coming through. Remember 30% deals, 30% investors, 40% on the business. And then the third strategy that I did for a long time was HMOs. Uh, I would buy lovely old boats of houses, put in on suites, very much the top end, charge top end rent, get top end quality people and run a large HMO portfolio, which now I'm moving to older students and turning into flats through loft developments. So I love my HMOs, but I'm just moving it to a more efficient model. Okay. Is there a, so it seems to me you you like kind of stuff that's tried, tested, you've done it before and it works. Is there a particular strategy that you just 
would tell people to stay away from. You wouldn't even bother looking at it yourself because there's so much yeah. going on at the moment that people are doing. Yeah. Um, is there something that you would you just dislike? Completely? Yeah. Yeah. And I have a friend of mine who I massively respect that does this. So I'm not knocking him at all. Rent to rent. Don't touch it with a barge pole. <laughs> Don't touch. And, and, and I'm going to tell you, if you insist on doing rent to rent, go see Francis Dolly. He's a brilliant guy. So I'm not knocking Francis. He's a top to bottom brilliant guy. Right. So if you must insist on ignoring me, go see Francis. But but if you do want to listen to me and completely no offense meant to Francis or Sarah Ponton Ryan, who's also a great girl, don't touch it with a barge pole. What are you doing? Rent to rent. Someone else owns the asset. So like almost all of my properties have doubled in value. Some of them have tripled in value because I bought them so discounted. I did nothing but sit and own them. Right. So what are you doing? You're making somebody else rich. Assets pay bills. Rich dad, poor dad, assets, pay bills. If you do rent to rent, this is what you're doing. You're fighting with the tenant over a light bulb and then you're fighting with the landlord over the repair of a washing machine. Mm. What are you doing? Whereas what you could be doing with that time is finding a discounted property with 70 grand profit, raising finance from an investor, splitting it 50-50, making 35 grand, getting a name for yourself, getting experience, getting case studies. That money then goes into deposit to buy your first property for yourself. Go for it. You know, so if you do insist, Francis and Sarah are great, but don't touch it. Well, I mean, what would you say to the, because I have this constant argument with a few, not an argument, disagreement mm-hmm. with a few people that I know. And he's like, yeah, but James, I've got a mat, I've got a cash flow of 25, 27,000 pounds a month for all the rent to rent that I've got. And it's um, like, how would, you, where, what do you think of that? Uh, ask them to work it out on their hourly rate. Um, on their hourly rate? Yes. So how many, like genuinely how many hours do they do? And I don't just mean how many hours they'd like to think they do, but when a cleaner fails to turn up, when one of their staff members fails to turn up, yeah, or any of that, any of that beautiful theoretical outsourcing, the, the chain, the link in the chain breaks and how much fun they had explaining to their wife or husband that they had to go out on a Saturday night at nine o'clock at night because of somebody else's property, not their own. Although to be fair, I don't, I don't go out on mine. Um, But I'd also say kudos. If you're making 27 grand net profit, brilliant, go buy some houses, you know? And then those assets. So so fair play, I just view it as a non-efficient use of time in building an asset portfolio that allows you to be financially free. It's a service, not an asset. And those are totally different categories. Go back to Rich Dad, Poor Dad. And I'd, I'd commend them. And, but people start rent to rent because they want to get into the industry because they haven't got any money. Totally understand that. I know what it's like to be skinned. One time I had 38 pence in the bank account and payroll coming up. And I was like, okay, <laughs> this is not fun. <laughs> they got paid. But I'm telling you, I was a bit like, you know, <sighs> make it happen. <laughs> it wasn't about making it rain. <laughs> it was just getting it through. But um, if people are starting in the industry and they, want, they don't have any money, then I would say deal packaging. Why? Because you learn to source discounted deals and you learn to work with investors. It's a lovely skill set, which then allows you to then say, okay, I've given you loads of deals, but now I'm moving to joint ventures. So instead of taking 5%, you now take 50%. And then you're like, okay, now you can just lend me money because I'm going to buy my houses. Same two skills, working with investors and finding discounted deals. I'd rather that than having to learn about how to argue with tenants about a light bulb. And the answer is, you change it, honey. 
know. Yeah, no, I think I agree with you because uh, I'm very much traditional myself. I want to I wanna either build it, sell it, or I want to build it, refinance it, or I want to buy a building, add value to it. Yes. I want to stick to it years yeah. and die successfully. There was a point when I was thinking, am I missing something with this essay and this rent to rent and service accommodation and all this? But then when I heard your podcast and you said, no, there's going to come a point where you, all your portfolio is going to mature yeah. nicely and whoever's doing a rent to rent, you've got no guarantee. The landlord can pull it from you at any time. Yeah. Now, I do do service accommodation, but that's got a finite time period for me. And for developers like you, one of the things I want to do with you is go, keep it keep it keep it keep it keep it. you know like because you have got the skills to build it and sell it it's like always trying to balance keeping some as well as selling some do you know what i mean because it's brilliant that the cash comes in but like in the short term that's going to give you some pain because keeping it doesn't give you as much cash flow as selling it but in the long term that's going to give you benefit so it's always that balance and, and traditional advice is buy five sell three keep two buy two buy five sell two keep three and there's nothing wrong with that advice at all just sometimes people who are developers they want to go so big so quickly that they keep building up and up and up and up and up but actually i just want you throwing some houses over your shoulder that you kind of put in your back pocket because those are the houses that make you wealthy as well which i think you're doing anyway aren't you yeah yeah no um i uh, i stupidly sold one house a few years ago and I absolutely regret it. And I said to myself after that, um, no, I'm going to try and hold as much as I can. And then obviously I learned more about refinancing yes. and it seems to work. And when you're working in London, uh, a project can take, it can take a while to do, but even when it goes over budget or over time, you find that because the market's increasing with it, yes. you don't actually ever lose out. So it's worked right. in my favour a few times. Good. And your location, I mean, London is it's hard in some ways because the money's bigger, but the um, the fluidity, the number of deals are there because you can. It's one in a hundred. The number of investors are there, the number of buyers are there, and broadly speaking, depending on the market circumstance, your capital growth is better than anyone else in the country. So you've got such a lovely opportunity in so many ways, and even things like a good friend of mine, Louis, one bed to two bed ex council flats because they're big and spacey. He just cookie cutter stamped that out. Did a beautiful job. Wow. Um, I was going to ask you, oh, hold on, I lost my chain of thought there. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> That's me. Oh, single parent and, parent and entrepreneurialism. So both my children have worked in my business, one for 14 months. She mm-hmm. was fab. And right now she's like, I'm going to run a better business than, than my mum. And then the, and, and, uh, and she appears to share some genes of mine. And then the other one for three summers. And he, he was, he was very much on the kind of physical side, the viewing side, the, the, um, the, 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 do sorting out the garden side, the handyman side. But it was quite interesting because he was watching, he was like, you could, he, from the age of 16, 17 and 18, he would scan my business and tell me what my staff were doing, not in a telltale way, but more in an analytical way. So now, cause they're like 23 and 26, I've kind of left them alone to do some developing and I really hope that they both um, come to uh, an investor and obviously ask to start to grow their own portfolio. But I do feel like as, a, as, as middle to so early and young 20-year-olds, they almost have to have life to give them some experiences now before mm-hmm. they then... So early on, I thought I'd give them houses really early. And now I think 
definitely not until after 30 because I think they've got to develop some strong antibodies to like, you know, like, like if you scrape your knee, you develop antibodies, don't you? I feel like that will be better for them. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Susanna, you said something um, in, in PPN where you said you've never found any of your deals on right move. Now I think when you said that, I think when I looked around the room, everybody was just like, did she just say that? And, um, the more I kind of thought about it, I thought, you know what? I'm looking back at my own portfolio and the deals that have really, really worked well are the deals that are outside a right move. Uh, how did you get them? Talking Where did you agents, get them? Talking to agents. Yes. Going out there, speaking to people, making sure yes. I'm just, you know, sometimes just walking up and down the street. I know it's really bad, yeah. but I've, I've often stopped and spoke to really old people on my road. Yeah, you start talking and it's like, oh, you know, I may be going into a care home. I'm yeah. looking to sell my house. Yeah. And it's like, look, I'm not forcing you, but hey, hey, I want to buy it. I want to buy it because yeah, yeah. I know what it's worth. Yeah, yeah. And and the, that kind of secured. So so I've never, uh, never, ever, ever bought a discounted deal by looking at Rightmove because everyone else is doing that. I do exactly what you just talked about, picking up the phone, direct to auction, pre, during and post, direct to vendor, direct house, direct to landlord. Not once have I looked at a right move and gone, oh, I'll go and phone up the, the agent about that property. And that goes back to time. You're wasting time. I just call it property porn. Like, it's nice to look at, like, the only time I look at right move is when I want to revalue my portfolio and I do that twice a year. We, we constantly, every three to six months, we do a profit and loss in each of the houses and we analyze what's going on, what can we improve, what's going well, what's going badly, how do we, how do we change, do we keep the same strategy for each property? Um, and, and once a year, I'll just re, revalue the whole portfolio and that's the only time I ever look at Rightmove. And, and 45 million quid's worth of property, never looked at Rightmove to buy house. Because you're snoozing, everyone else is doing it. You mentioned also that you like to um, you measure a lot of stats. Yes. So, what would you say are the stats for somebody? How many viewings? How many phone calls do they need to make? How many viewings do they need to do before they actually find one deal? So people actually realise how much legwork goes into this. Okay, stats on deals: one hundred phone calls, twenty-five viewings, twenty-one offers. Because you should be offering on about eighty-five percent of what you view. One to two houses bought. Typically, one, sometimes two. That's it. 100 phone calls, 25 viewings, 21 offers, one to two houses bought. Job done. And then auctions, it's one in four properties that you try and buy, you'll get. So if I get back to that time where we tried to buy 30 houses with, by the way, investors, every single one of them was with an investor uh, and we got seven, 30 divided by four is actually seven and a half. So statistically speaking, it worked out. And we've measured that. And we try and we love, I love auctions, pre, during and post. So auctions, it's one in four. Houses on with the state agents, it's one in a hundred phone calls. Okay, and you're and you're actually making those that many phone calls, you and your team, to source deals yeah. like that. Yes, um, but you can make. I would I would take about sixteen minutes to make a phone call because I'd slow them down. My colleague Ash, who I worked with for years, he would take nine minutes to make a phone call, and it would typically be the third house they tell you about, not the first or the second, but the third one. And the reason I think they sold so many houses to us, we were just nice people. So many, and, and so normally about 90% of the time, if somebody can't get a deal, it's because they haven't done the numbers. They, they've picked up the phone 10 times and they've gone to see two properties. Well, that's okay, but you've got 0.1 of a deal. 
right now, you know, statistically speaking. And every now and again, it's because the person hasn't got the right skill or the right script on the phone. So like with my mentoring guys, first I'll encourage them for numbers because I do uh, mentoring and they'll be on the phone to me and I'll be like, what's your numbers? And they're like, oh, I knew you were going to say that. I'm like, go on, what's your numbers? And then it's only if they was, they're still making a large number of phone calls, but they're not yet getting the, either the deal, the viewings or the offers or the offers accepted, did we then look at the skills on the phone and they send me in recordings of themselves. And then you're like, okay. So a typical skill failure will be, hi, have you got a property with margin? I'm a property developer. All about me. Yeah. The reason we got so many deals were, hey, how are you doing, Aaron? How's your kids? How's your guitar playing? How's your parents? I know they got the house out in, in France. I'm really sorry to hear that your grandma passed away. You know, wh- when are you moving in with your girlfriend? Because I know you've separated from your wife. You know, like, <laughs> how are you? You know, I'm interested in you. And actually, a couple of years ago, a really nice guy called Mike came to one of my workshops and he was like, mate, I was, the, I was a young estate agent 10 years ago. And you taught me how to buy houses and I've got 10 houses now. Wow. So I would spend more time on the estate agent relationship than the house. I've got like, like with my mentoring guys, I give them 175 documents, right? So I've got a three page property viewing recorder I give them. So you can, you can write down quite quickly everything about house. And then I'd be like, Vroom, let me focus on you. You know, and so when I go see auction properties, for example, everyone else runs into the house and totally ignores the auctioneer. And I go into the house, back out again and spend the next 10 minutes with the auctioneer. Relationships, always. Because they're the person that's got to tell the the seller, I trust this person. I think you're best off going with them. Yeah. What would you say to people that, because I hear this all the time, they say, oh, I can't find any deals in my area. I live in such an expensive part. Now, I've done this myself. I live in an expensive part of London. And I've told myself this story. Oh, James, there ain't no deals to be had here. That is pub talk. Turn it off. That is 100% pub talk. So the first thing I'd say is how many phone calls, how many viewings, and how many offers have you done? So we just, not not in a critical way, just let's just shake it out. Let's just look at the data, you know, because a business is all about performance and deliverables, inputs that make outputs to be a geek. So, and all 90% of the time, it's because they haven't made enough phone calls. They haven't done enough viewings. If they've either made phone calls and gone to every viewing, and I want there to be a hundred phone calls, 25 viewings, which suggests that really only one in four conversations is ever going to get you to a viewing. Do you see? And then I want people to offer on 21 deals if they, if they view 25 because that's about 85%. And again, if they, if they go see a deal and they can't offer on any of them, it's because they haven't been discerning enough on the phone call. So if you haven't got an 85% offer rate, it's because you work further up the chain on the phone call has just gone. Yeah. <laughs> Puppy dog love. Let's go see a property. Wee! Rather than let me just check that the figures work. So 90% of the time it's just figures. Or, or the other one I get is, oh, you can't buy a deal at auction, it all goes mental. I was like, have you analysed the last two years' worth of the auction results? Because if you haven't, you know, turn it off. I don't want to hear. And if you have, and the evidence tells you that, my evidence tells me you can buy one in four property deals. So I always go back to data. Have you analysed? Are they facts or is it pub talk? And it's always pub talk. 
My uncle's dog's cat's budgie auntie says. That's pub talk, mate. <laughs> it's just made you not become a millionaire. Yeah, yeah. So you, you're, you would say there's deals everywhere? Everywhere. 1% of properties are sold discounted, between 1% and 2%. The, I can't swear on the, on the podcast, so I shan't, but I think you guys know what I mean. The, the concept of a goldmine area is... Do, 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 do. <laughs> yeah. There are deals everywhere. I mean, I'm in Bristol city centre. It's an expensive city. You know, mm. I've bought deals in the nicest part of Bristol. I bought a deal for 175 grand pre-auction that we spent 20 grand doing up. It was just a bit tired and we sold for 240. The, that's like, what's the, what's the poshest part of London? Uh, Kensington, Chelsea, maybe. Yeah. Right. Could you buy this? Okay. Different price point, And that was 10 years ago, but could you buy a deal in Kensington, Chelsea? Would you emotionally feel that you could get a deal in Kensington or Chelsea? Emotionally, probably not. No, I automatically think it's the most expensive part of town. I can't afford anything there. 1% of deals in Kensington, Chelsea are sold discounted. You just have to raise more money. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. 100%. And actually, um, at the top end, until very recently, that top end market was collapsing, um, although it's strengthening it now, which is nice to see. Mm. I think you're right there, because I was at an auction recently, and I watched this young lady, and I'm looking at her thinking, she's just paid seven or, I think, £800,000 for this one-bedroom Maida Vale flat. And then wow. I quickly went on to Rightmove and I had a look and it was like, they're going for £1.1 million in the same block. And I'm thinking, she's not stupid. Yep. For us, it's just we're thinking the amounts are a lot higher. Exactly. She's found her, her 1% deal in that room. Well done, her. Yeah. Before the costs. Yeah. You know? <laughs> That's not bad for a few hours work, is it? No, no, no. I think you're right. It's just, like you said, the, the, the amounts are a lot higher. Yes. So I think the one thing about that is, can you afford to put it right if, you, if it goes wrong? And that's the one thing, if I was starting out in London, that I'd be nervous of. Is it too expensive for me to make my early teeth cutting mistakes on? In which case, do I go out to somewhere like Bedford or, you know, Reading or somewhere like that where whilst it would still be financially painful if I made some mistakes like electric shower and no plumber, do you know what I mean? Or the equivalent, at least I can afford to put it right until I've really understood my rhythm. And then I can come into a higher level area because if you, 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 you don't ever want to be falling flat in your face, you know, cause that's, that's game over. Mm-hmm. Moving on from that, Susanna, you said about making mistakes I know we've spoke about all the good stuff up until now. Is there a mistake or something that's gone wrong in, in the good property company's uh, career uh, kind of time span that you can remember that you wouldn't mind sharing with us? There's hundreds, uh, like hundreds. Um, oh, dear Lord. Do you want the most painful ones or just the everyday ones? I think let's go for the most painful one. Okay. Okay. The most painful one um, is... We, we once built a house as a joint venture and I judged that we had not performed as a business. I'm not, I take, I, when I say we, it is my name on the counter, right? So we collectively had not performed correctly. So I gave it to the investor and said, you know, I'll not take anything here. And, and it wasn't so much the money, it was the, the time needed to involve to put right some mistakes that we made. I mean, listen, it ended up great. It ended up with 10-year guarantee, beautiful house, you know, lovely. 
but I didn't feel, and it was a, it's very, we have, we also, it wasn't just us, um, but that's not me making any excuses because we didn't screw up. Um, it was also I had a builder that went bust halfway through, nicked the kitchen, you know, but that, that is, um, you know, so it was one of those, I do find that when something goes wrong, like it's like a magnet, you know, it's like this went wrong and this went wrong and this went wrong and this went wrong. This went wrong this. And, and it's the first time ever I experienced project fatigue as well. I was so fed up with it, you know? Um, so we ended up just going, you know what? Good luck to you. Over to you. Here is an entire house. Um, and whilst a part of my emotion, that childish part of me was like, that's not fair. Um, I felt it probably was <laughs> with hindsight, but you know, you don't want to do that too often, do you? No, no, not no, at all. no, but, but in the long run, was that the right route to take? Yeah. Yeah. So, so, um, and within that, within that, just to, and, and this is, I'm just telling you, in fact, download my 101 lessons. It's free right on my website the good property company there's 120 odd or 117 lessons every single one has been based on a mistake right um so that one um and it, this wasn't me but i uh, my name is on above the door that one the uh, the 10 year guarantee surveyor had emailed a member of my team who then subsequently left without actually um letting me know they just deleted the email to say, before you build the house on the foundations, could you just get the building regs guy to certify the foundations are firm, you know, that they're solid enough to take the house? Delete. Wow. Yeah. So so you don't know what you don't know. If, but the mistake there was um, really having, having belt and braces double checks, wasn't it? So as much as I'd love to say it wasn't me, it's my name above the door. So I had the most horrendous day when I came to take over this project and, and realized that we'd built an entire house without having the foundations signed off by the building regs guy. Could you imagine how bad that feels? Yeah. Like, so uh, I took 24 hours obviously to not sleep and just basically felt like, you know, like one of those Dali paintings where you just feel like you're sliding over the yep, edge yep. <laughs> and you just like, and you go through the whole process and you would love to blame and moan, but you don't have time for it. And then you're like, right, what can I do? And what's amazing is the surveyors are generally there to help, right? They, they have to do their job professionally. They're not going to do anything that's going to put them in trouble. And they went, Oh, you know what we could do? We could dig an inspection hole. I'm like, wonderful. <laughs> could you do that like now, <laughs> like in the next 10 minutes? <laughs> and they did. And they were very happy with the foundations. But that was probably my worst moment in property where we'd built a 420 grand house and somebody in my team, bless their cotton socks, had deleted the email that said, "Could." and all they had to do was phone up Charles and say, hey, Charles, do you think you can come out and do a site visit and sign this off? so so i just want to share that even amongst success with all these gorgeous numbers and you know these properties i own you are just going to have a darling moment where you just you just want to slide over the edge and realize that you've done a really stupid cock up and that was that was probably i think that was one of our worst yeah i think um, i mean i've shared it with you before where i've made quite a few mistakes i've lost six figures myself um it's very very painful um yeah if you're going through this journey on your own and you're not really learning from anybody's mistakes, you know, you're going to make a lot more mistakes. So it's, it's probably yes. a good idea. You learn from someone 
who's done it, which leads me nicely onto my next thing, which is pretty much a plug for yourself because I think just the free content that you put out there is amazing. And then the stuff you talk about at, um, you know, at, at networking events, again, there's a lot of value that you put forward. You put so much value forward that I thought that I actually done a little video on it because I wanted to share it, it with people. It was really cool of you. Really cool. Yeah. And I felt people needed to hear it. So anybody, Susanna, who's out there starting on their property journey, yes. where can they find out more information about you and what are some of the things you offer? Because I know you offer stuff from as little as, you know, well, the free stuff. And then I've been on your website where you can get some real value from spending 20, 30, 40 pounds on yeah, yeah. the mentorship program. But I'll let you explain a little bit more about that. So let's do free first, because I'm sure that's where people are like, woohoo. So we have a YouTube video, a YouTube channel, The Good Property Company, Susanna Cole. We've got way over a million views and we do videos pretty much every day. Yeah. So, and if you want to categorize it, we've put it all into playlists. If you want to know about raising money, there's your playlist. If you want to know about development, there's your playlist. That house doesn't feature, by the way, it's too painful to video. (laughs) (laughs) You'd see me crying. (laughs) And then um, we do a lot on social media. So you and I connect on, I think it was Instagram first that we were connecting, but social media, Facebook, LinkedIn, and all of those, um, because I love sharing stuff. And then the website, thegoodpropertycompany.co.uk. And again, like you say, I've produced lots of packs, really high quality material. I've got all of my, like, if somebody wants to run a sourcing business, I've got the legal documents that I spent two and a half grand on. If they want to do joint ventures, the legal documents I spent two and a half grand on. We've got all of those available to download. They're like super cheap, you know, for people. Obviously, they should check them out with a lawyer, but... They, they were the ones that we did hundreds of deals with. And then I do have online masterclasses and things like that, that people download quite regularly. And then I do two mentoring programs. I do an online mentoring program and a flagship face-to-face. And I'm not a factory. So I don't do bums on seats, loads of people. Um, my team want to get to know somebody. We have a couple of rules. If we don't take to the person, you know, if, if their manners, should we just say are a bit rude? We won't, we won't have them in the room. And if we feel that they're vulnerable or wouldn't succeed, we wouldn't take their money. So we have a very, very high qualified, highly qualified group of people that we work with that from all of my interviewing with them, I'm pretty damn sure they're going to succeed. So they're really fun to work with because they're, you know, they're, they're, they're going places. And I do online for folks that maybe have family commitments and I do face-to-face. Um, but it's a small high quality program rather than a big factory where so I do all the teaching because I want to keep the standard really high Mm -hmm. I mean going back to your mentoring I've heard some really positive stuff about it in fact one of the positive things was from actually a teacher who's on your mentoring program and 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 his words were he goes if you're looking for a course that has a curriculum a proper curriculum a proper structure and he also said he goes I feel Susanna's mentoring program is very good because it's run by a woman. And oh, wow. you know, no, these are his words. It's a curriculum. It very much feels like something that's been structured and put together. And it's, and it's very good because it's run by a woman. Yeah. Um, you know, I feel, yeah, it could be beneficial to someone like we were just talking about the mistakes. You don't want to make those mistakes no. early on. They can be very, very costly. I think one of the, I feel very strongly that when somebody, whether they choose me or whether they choose somebody else, for education um they've got to go is there a a value fit 
you know, from what I can see, do we have sort of have similar values and um, have they done what I want to do a lot? So if somebody wants to raise money, I've worked with hundreds of investors. I'm not advertising myself here. I'm just, you know, if, if somebody wants to do deal packaging, uh, you know, I've done hundreds of deals. If somebody wants to do buy to sell, I've done shed loads, you know. Um, I feel very strongly that you need to look at not just how they sell the course, you know, money, 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 you can make loads of money. We know it's true. Mm. How they, they also need to have done enough deals that they can openly laugh about the moment they would just wanted to fall off a cliff because they built a house and they hadn't checked it. Do you know what I mean? And it's now, I wouldn't call it funny, but it's, it's now been put to bed. Um, they have made enough mistakes that if they can see you starting down a route of a mistake, they know to draw you back. So I feel very strongly, I think someone that has done 10 houses, I think it's amazing. And I think hats off to you. That's an amazing achievement. But if you come into my industry and start saying that you can teach after 10 houses, I feel very strongly you are putting your students or your mentees or your delegates at risk because you don't have the 360 experience to have been able to see patterns emerging from very high numbers of deals to then go, that's a pattern. Let me just save you before you hit the edge, you know? And so very, I feel very strongly about it, but I don't badmouth people, but please don't mentor with somebody who's only 10 houses ahead of you because they don't, they, it's, it's not about what they can teach you to be successful. It's about how they prevent you from making mistakes that could put you out of the business. Because mm-hmm. property is expensive. Yeah, of course, of course. And that's one of the reasons I do the teaching myself and we decided instead of being a factory, you know, with our numbers, we could absolutely, couldn't we, chess beat and get huge numbers and do big conventions. And I decided, no, I want to remain high quality. Okay. No, some sound advice there. Suzanne, I'm going to wrap it up here, but I'm going to ask you two quick questions. What's what's the future look like for the good property company? And is there anything in particular that you're working on that you want to share? Uh. I have lots of energy right now. So um, my team, I'm saying this with a twinkle in my, my team are loving it right now. You, you need to ask them. I'm like mile a minute going, boom, 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 we're delivering. So the future for us, um, I have four businesses, two property businesses, a live education business and an online education business. We're going to keep the quality. So my four, so the future for the business, the property businesses is automation and efficiency. I have a cracking portfolio. I am paying houses down like they were, they were like dominoes, boom, 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 as fast as I can. I'm also a we. I have an amazing lettings team. I'm so glad. A-listers. We are introducing automation and we are introducing efficiencies. So things like my high quality HMOs are now going to high quality student HMOs. We've got. Um, certificate of lawfulness to do loft extensions to then turn HMOs into flats purely for efficiencies. Not because HMOs are bad. HMOs are brilliant for 10 years, but not for the rest of your life. Just mm-hmm. said to me. So about efficiency, paying down debt, increasing revenue, reducing time. It's a mature business that needs to become even more efficient, right? And then I'm adding to it because, as you know, I just bought myself a, a flat in Barcelona. Woohoo! <laughs> Did I tell anyone? Oh dear. 1920s Art Deco, nine minutes from the beach, Barcelona. Dream. So, and then my my live business, I'll probably reduce down the number of uh, events I do purely 
because I'm focusing on the online. So if anybody wants to come and work with me, come soon. I mean, I adore it, but um, because I always want to remain high quality, I keep numbers relatively low to make sure I can spend enough time with each person. And I'm looking at it and going, I love this, but I'm going to keep it um, small number of events. So my flagship program or any of my workshops. So get there soon because there'll be a time when I retire from that. Um, even though I adore it. And then the growth side is the online. Why? Because I can produce quality material that I work really hard at. And then you or anyone else can download it at three o'clock in the morning when I'm fast asleep, you know, so a, it can scale, but B it means I can, I can help. I can sell to more people. Let's be upfront about it, but I can help more people and they can do it at their leisure. So I'm, I'm like a non-tech person that's totally in love with the internet you know, for the positive opportunities it can bring to everybody, which is why we started the YouTube channel years ago before we had, you know, we just wanted to share properties life-changing. So I'm kind of interested in, in my live education business, I can only reach so many people and that's great. And I can really high quality help them, but on my online, I can really high quality help so many more people. And that's what has a bigger impact, doesn't it? So I think, I think we got a mature business with the lettings. We got, uh, oh, uh, uh, we got a mature business, which is going to reduce down in numbers, but stay high quality with the live and then a growth scalable business with the online. And then projects I'm involved with this year, I'm doing a grade two star listed chapel, which I bought for 135 grand is probably worth, well, well, it's the most central chapel in Bristol. Um, there's one around the corner selling for 750. Woo-hoo. Wow. Um, I'm turning a bunch of my houses into loft extensions and then flats. Um, I'm buying a commercial uh, a building. Uh, so this is quite light numbers for me. These are quite small. And then I'm renovating my, my office that I own as well. So I think it's about only about six projects this year, which to me is super light, actually. Yeah. And then for me, future is family, friends, you know, it, all the gorgeous, happy physical stuff I do. It, for somebody who's full of energy, I do go to meditation, which is kind of ironically funny, you know, because I don't stop. And then, and then travel and just seeing more of the world as well. Mm. It's your labour. Yeah, yeah, with the fold down seats where you now turn left instead of right, and it's it's delicious. I'm telling you. Yeah. And I upgraded my best mate. I am um, for his birthday. I upgraded my best mate on the on the way home from Vietnam. And he's texting me going, have you seen the bar? And I'm like, yes, because <laughs> I'm so, you know? but there's nothing better than like upgrading your best mate on a flight, is there? You know, we're turning left instead of right. Go. He <laughs> loved it. It was really cool. Susanna, my last question for you is, it's a personal one. What's one vice Susanna Cole could not live without? Oh, tea. <laughs> I'm sorry to be so fuddy-duddy. Oh, my God. Earl Grey tea. I'm like intravenously addicted to it. Yes. Okay. Well, thank you, Susanna. It's been great talking to you. And I will um, I'll put up all your links at the bottom of the, the podcast. And once again, thank you very much for agreeing to come on. And I think it's, uh, like I said in the beginning, it's been a lot of value. It's always a lot of value talking to you or seeing you at a live event. And I personally look forward to seeing you on a Saturday. Yeah, see you Saturday. Thanks for tuning in to the J2 Hub podcast with James Sahota. If you like the podcast, feel free to subscribe so you never miss another podcast from James. 
And if you got value from this podcast, do take the time to leave us a review on iTunes or wherever else you consume your podcast content from. And remember, you're never too late to become something you truly want to become.